0: You are listening to the What's After Church podcast, providing support for those leaving church and sharing connection, resources, and strategy with those reimagining faith for the good of all creation. I'm Jason, and thanks for joining me today. After leaving church, what's important now? See, I grew up attending church with my parents. We went every time there was a service, including Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and the occasional revival meeting that would meet Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. I went to Christian school. I attended Christian camps and vacation Bible school in the summer. I was kind of the go-to kid in Sunday school class for answering the questions. I typically won the sword drills, you know, where you look up the Bible verse in the fastest time. And I got to help out with the puppet shows and the flannel graph. As an adult, I volunteered faithfully and led Bible studies. I went to seminary. I served as a pastor for 14 years. I guess you could say I was all in on church. Church was great for me. I was good at navigating church life and loved the routine. I knew the insider language and what was expected of me. It was great, until it wasn't. The church hadn't changed, but I had, and had become an obstacle in my journey. I found myself in an awkward place where my paycheck was tied to my faith, and my faith was not in line with my employer, the church. So after leaving church, I found I left a world where everyone cared what I believed and expected my stance on most topics to be the same as their stance. I entered a place where no one cared about my thoughts on baptism, salvation, sin, or the end times. It was incredibly freeing, lonely, and disorienting all at the same time. It was a season of questioning and doubting if I believed something because of my training or if I cuz I believed it for myself. Now that I had left church, I wanted a greater sense of what was important and where I wanted to put my focus. Being raised in a Protestant Christian home, I believed the fundamental question of life was are you saved? This question would come up multiple times each week in church services, Bible studies, and watching Christian television. Others would ask, Are you saved? Or, What will happen when you die? Or, Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Or, Do you know where you will spend eternity? Or, Are you covered in the blood of Jesus? Now really, no one thought that was a bad idea or a disgusting image? The questions we ask are essential because questions reveal our beliefs and reinforce our priorities. For example, if I asked you how many people you hugged this week, it would indicate my value of embracing others and reinforce my expectation that you are sharing hugs with those around you. The same is true of faith and spirituality. The questions we ask reveal our focus and what we believe. The question, are you saved? It was phrased differently, but the emphasis was always the same. If God and I are not good, and if I do not get good with God, then the consequences are going to suck. The question reveals a belief that God is very dangerous we should be afraid, and we should do everything we can to make sure we get the answer right. But what if we're wrong about the premise that we're not good with God? What would happen to the questions about the afterlife? Would they still be the questions we need to ask each other? Maybe there's better questions that we should consider. For Christians, their belief of why Jesus died is the reason behind these questions. There are different ideas about Jesus' death and why he died. They're all called theories of atonement in Christian theology. Each denomination or church is very ingrained or bought in on their chosen theory, and many no longer realize that their preferred approach is one of many ideas. First there is the ransom theory. Jesus liberates humanity from slavery to sin and Satan and thus death by giving his own life as a ransom sacrifice. Jesus pays a debt to Satan for society. There's also the Christus victor theory. Jesus defeats Satan in a spiritual battle and frees enslaved humanity by defeating its captor. Then there's the satisfaction or penal substitution theory. Humanity owes a debt not to Satan, but to God. Humans are subject to God's wrath, and Jesus' saving work substitutes himself in our place, bearing the curse for humans. Jesus pays a debt to God for humanity. Now this has been the dominant theory for Protestant Christianity in the last few hundred years. There is also the scapegoat theory. The result of human rivalry and competition is the need for a scapegoat and sacrifice to reduce our anxiety and fear. Subversive in nature, Jesus allows himself to be the scapegoat, and his death exposes the evil present in rivalry, competition, killing, and sacrifice. The sacrificial system killed Jesus and thereby disclosed its own bankruptcy and defeat. Jesus modeled a life of love and openness that overcomes all evil. Now, what if the dominant theory of satisfaction and substitution gets it wrong? What if we misunderstood why Jesus had to die? Could it be that Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity, but to change our minds about God? Scapegoat theory indicates a pattern of human behavior where we fear being separate from others while we also compete with them to survive this creates anxiety and when the pressure gets too high in a group someone influential picks an individual or group to bully who sometimes is eventually excluded or killed the anxiety subsides when the person is removed or destroyed For many cultures, this evolved from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. The thinking was, if killing someone makes us feel less anxious and more united, let's do it regularly, and we can use animals to get the same outcome. In the Bible, we see this pattern of attempting to scapegoat the innocent in stories like Cain and Abel, or Abraham and Isaac, or the story of Jesus as well as the evolution to animal sacrifice. Hearing these stories from childhood, I thought the sacrificial system was normal and didn't question the reason for all the killing. I also skipped over multiple passages where God rebukes this behavior. Like Isaiah one 10 through 10-17, What are the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says Yahweh. I have had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed animals. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of male goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this of your hand to trample my courts? Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, put away the evil of your doing before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek justice, relieve the oppressed, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Or Hosea chapter 6 verse 6, "For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. See God does not want sacrifice or killing. God wants us to set aside hate and rivalry to live with mercy and love towards one another. Even Jesus echoed this multiple times, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, and Matthew 9, verse 13. But you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Instead of choosing rivalry, blame, and competition, Jesus shows that we can choose love, vulnerability, and openness. Jesus reveals that God is not full of wrath. We are. The reality is that we are really good with God, as the Apostle Paul highlighted in some of his writings, like in Romans chapter 5 when he said, All were justified to life. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, In Christ all will be made alive. Or in Colossians 1, For all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him, that is Jesus, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Or in Colossians chapter 3. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Even in the face of horrific evil, love overcomes in the end. Jesus reveals himself as the representation of God, a God of humility, love, and compassion. Jesus did not die to appease an angry God, but to show us a different way to live and to show us the overwhelming love of God. If Jesus died to reveal a God that is entirely loving, all for us and on our side, then what happens to our question, Are you saved? Or, where will you go when you die? If you have never been in jeopardy of God's wrath, then we cannot be saved in the sense of being protected from eternal torture. The question, are you saved, becomes invalid and no longer makes sense. It's, It's like asking, how does the number nine smell? All of the questions related to eternity or being in right relationship with God are bogus and unnecessary because we are good with God. If our eternal future is secure and we no longer need to ask these questions, then what becomes the question we should be asking? The most important question must have something to do with the present moment. Jesus emphasized who we are, the life we live, and the impact we have on those around us. Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. This is in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. The most important question becomes, how will you live your life with great love? Now we could ask this in different ways. How will you live your life with great love? Are you experiencing and revealing love at this moment? How are you treating those around you? How will you love well and add value to those around you and for all creation? The focus becomes revealing who we are as sons and daughters of God by bringing God's love and goodness and grace into each experience. It's experiencing the divine and manifesting the gifts and talents placed in us by God for the good of others. We stop asking what happens when we die, and we start asking how will we live. Brenning Manning once said, I've decided if I had to live my life over again, I would not only climb more mountains, swim more rivers, and watch more sunsets. I would not only go barefoot earlier in the spring and stay out later in the fall, but I would devote not one more minute To monitoring my spiritual growth. What would I actually do if I had it to do over again? I would simply do the next thing in love. We can learn a lot from those who are further on the journey as they reflect on their lives, on how they lived. In his 70s and thinking of doing it again, Brennan says, I would not devote one more minute to monitoring my spiritual growth. I would simply do the next thing in love. This is a powerful statement coming from a former priest. See, an obsession with the afterlife and even with spiritual growth hinders the achievement of the real goal, loving well. If we stop focusing on who is in with God and whether we are getting it right, we can do the next thing in love, revealing God in us. Let's take the energy focused on internal security and invest it in loving others. For love is the transformation that we all seek. So, as you go through your day, how will you live your life with great love? What would it look like to do the next thing in love? And right now, what does love require of you? Thank you for listening to the What's After Church podcast. I'd love to hear from you at whatsafterchurch.com. If you have not subscribed, please do so to stay up to date on new resources and connection opportunities. Until next time, may you experience more of what gives you life, and may you see the light in all people and reveal the light in you. Peace and love.